Aloha and welcome to Conversations to Enlighten and Heal. Today, in the first half, first hour of our show, I'll be speaking with Dr. Raymond Moody, author of the classic bestseller, Life After Life, now in its 25th anniversary. At the top of the hour, neurosurgeon Dr. John L. Turner, a friend of Dr. Moody's and the author of Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, will join us on the show for a deeper look into the science behind near-death and out-of-body experiences. Conversations is sponsored by HealthMasterySystems.com, Holistic Products for Body, Mind, and Soul, and PurePlantEssentials.com, Organic Aromatherapy. Please visit these websites today. Dr. Moody is widely known as a world thought leader in the area of near-death studies and coined the phrase near-death experience. Dr. Moody has written more than 11 books on the subject of the afterlife. His famous book, Life After Life, has sold more than 13 million copies worldwide and has just been re-released in its 25th anniversary edition. Dr. Moody's groundbreaking work about death and dying continues to capture enormous public interest, and his newest book, Glimpses of Eternity, has just been released this September. Glimpses of Eternity is a culmination of Dr. Moody's latest findings. It gives profound insight insights into the topic of death and dying, which have never been revealed to the public before. Dr. Moody received his MD from the Medical College of Georgia and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Virginia. Dr. Moody trains hospice workers, clergy, psychologists, and other medical professionals in all aspects of his work in death and dying. In his private practice with the terminally ill, Dr. Moody has helped thousands of people to cope with death and dying and the death of their loved ones. Dr. Moody is a renowned speaker and noted authority on death and dying and and has appeared several times on Oprah as well as on hundreds of other national media, including NBC Today, ABC's Turning Point, Donahue, The Sally Jesse Raphael Show, Geraldo, and The Joan Rivers Show. To learn more about Dr. Moody and his fascinating work on death and dying, please visit his website, lifeafterlife.com. That's lifeafterlife.com. Please welcome to the show my very special guest, Dr. Raymond Moody. Hi, Raymond. Thanks for joining us. Hi, KG. Thank you so much for having me on your program. Well, you have one... Well, it's great to have you here. You have wonderful information to share that will be helpful to thousands of people, I know. So you're considered the world's leading authority in the field of near-death experiences. You've devoted your entire career to the scientific research and study on near-death experiences and have worked with countless terminally ill patients and their loved ones, which you write about in your, in your books. So tell us something about your clinical research and investigation with people who experienced clinical death then revived. What's the most interesting experience you have ever witnessed personally? Well, you know, Kiji, I and and I never even heard of this until I was 18 years old in 1962 and I read about it in Plato's Republic, of all places. I was a philosophy major at the University of Virginia and went on to get my Ph.D. in philosophy there. And um, when I was a third-year student at UVA, I uh, heard from one of my philosophy professors that a professor of psychiatry there, Dr. George Ritchie, who remains to this day the finest person I ever knew in my life, um, and Dr. Ritchie had had this experience in 
1943, when he was pronounced dead, uh, twice, about nine minutes apart, so he was in the state of apparent clinical death for at least nine minutes. Mm. They don't know how long before he was discovered by the ward boy that he had been in that state. But um, Dr. Ritchie's story, probably because it was the first one I heard, um, remains to me the most fascinating at all. He, of all, he, he talked about um, being actually pronounced dead. He, his death certificate was written out, but from his point of view, he, he left his body and he uh, saw his own physical body there in the Army Hospital um, ward. This was when he was a he was a volunteer in uh, World War II, and um, then had this experience in which uh, a light filled up the room and displayed around him a full-color, moving, three-dimensional panorama consisting of everything he had ever done. Uh, he was there in the presence of a powerful being of complete compassion and love that he identified as Christ, who showed him different realms of the afterlife. And um, I've heard many stories that really match George's detail for detail. Um, but, you know, I think maybe the, the emotional impact of the very first one you hear kind of sticks with you. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the interim, I, since that time, I've talked with thousands of people from all over the world who uh, really went to the brink of death. Many of them had lengthy cardiac arrests and came back with this same uh, story, which we know now has been confirmed by physicians all over the world. We can uh, say that this is pretty much a universal experience among human beings. So what are the most common experiences reported after a near-death experience? Um, do people, you mentioned that uh, he experienced, he had this knowing that it was Jesus uh, Christ that he was seeing. So do people ever report seeing angels, other, you know, other? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this is, this is reported by people of all religions. And, and basically the, the standard things people tell us is that at this point where their heart stops beating, they often hear their doctor say, oh, my God, he's dead, or words mm -hmm. to that effect. And uh, from their point of view, they're surprised by this because they feel that they uh, rise out of their physical bodies. Mm -hmm. They see their own bodies down below, and they, they see the resuscitation attempts going mm -hmm. on. Um, very often they tell us that they move through a passageway of some work uh, uh, that they may some um, kind of tunnel to a tunnel mm -hmm. that's right mm -hmm. um, into a beautiful light they say that this is far brighter than anything we've ever experienced uh, on the earth and yet completely comforting and full of peace and joy uh, that they, they say this whole this light is pervaded by mm -hmm. by uh, love that just defies description mm -hmm. um, people say often that they hear beautiful music mm -hmm that, uh, again, music that's just indescribable from the earthly mm -hmm. point of view. And, and again, this, this notion that it's indescribable is something that we hear constantly. People say that no matter um, um, 
how articulate they may be or however many languages they may speak, that the experience they have is just something utterly beyond words. Mm -hmm. And they tell us that in that light they meet up with relatives or friends of theirs who've died before, uh, that they see them there not as a physical body as we experience here in this world, but more as a form of light, Mm -hmm. which they recognize. Uh, They say that people in this state seem to be in the prime of life. And uh, this is often accompanied with a life review and the Mm. presence, again, of this being of complete compassion and love that they describe as a bright light who guides them through this experience. So they're guided. Yes. Well, and guided in the sense that uh, the typical description I get with this is people say that everything is there at once. Mm -hmm. In other words, you see every detail of your life in this full-color three-dimensional hologram almost Mm -hmm. Um, and that because language is sequential when they describe it they have to describe it as though it were a sequence but in the experiencing of it it's not sequential rather they say that everything is there at once Mm -hmm. and this being of light sort of directs their attention to specific aspects of it. No words are exchanged, but they say they are immediately aware of the thoughts, Mm -hmm. and they tell us that in this panorama, you you don't review your life from the point of view you had when you were in it, rather that in this review, when you see yourself doing an action, then when that action has its consequence, you feel yourself embedded in the consciousness of those with whom you've interacted. And so if you see yourself doing a mean-spirited action to somebody else, then you feel the sad feelings mm-hmm. empathically and directly uh, that you brought about in that person's life. Or when you see yourself doing um, kind-hearted actions, then you feel the good feelings. And um, so naturally when people come back from this, they tell us that their lives have been dramatically transformed. Mm-hmm. They say that um, whatever they had been chasing before, that uh, this experience assures them that the most important thing we can do while we're alive here is to cultivate loving relationships yes. with others. And they tell us that uh, they have absolutely no more fear of death. That mm-hmm. uh, to them, their experience conveyed complete conviction that uh, what we call death is just a is. Um, passage into another state of existence beyond this life. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a trans-dimensional place, what I would call trans-dimensional, because like you say, it's like holographic, like it's you're perceiving everything at once. You can't, what vehicle are you perceiving with? It can't be the mind, because the mind, it seems like that would be overwhelming to the mind to have all that at once. This is is exactly the word I have used, trans-dimensional, and, um, And I think that's a very important concept for understanding these things because uh, people tell us when they go into this experience that there just are no words. Mm -hmm. And so obviously any words that they can um, use to to describe it uh, ultimately fail. They say that it's beyond... um, beyond anyone's ability mm-hmm. to put it into words. Mm-hmm. And, and it would be limiting it. 
That's so right. it sounds like the absolute, an experience of the absolute, absolute beauty, absolute truth. Yes, yes. And, and most remarkably of all, of all uh, KG, uh, this is something I've known about for a long time. I uh, first hearing one of these in 1972 from one of my own medical school professors. But uh, this, this experience that people report when they almost die is identical in every detail to the experiences of people at the bedside of the dying as well, or what we call shared death experiences. Yes. That, um, that it's very common for people standing there at the bedside of someone who actually does pass away, that when that happens, the bystanders themselves talk about such things as, uh, well, sometimes I hear that the bystanders some of the bystander will say that as the person in the bed uh, died, they themselves uh, got out of their body and rose up and accompanied the dying person uh, toward this light. Or another thing I hear, used to hear most of these from physicians back in the 1970s and early 80s, because at that time, um, the standard medical practice was when a patient was dying, the doctors and nurses would come in and sort of escort the family out under the theory that this would be too overwhelming for mm-hmm. the patient's family. So it was typically, back when I entered medical school in 72, the practice was, uh, you know, that the doctors would come in. And at that time, I heard most of these from physicians who would tell me such things as that they saw what seemed to be a transparent replica of the dying person sort of stand up and mm-hmm. uh, from the body and move away or or describe it uh, often as a sort of um, uh, often roundish or globular shaped um, bright light of, of golden or grayish hues would, would rise up and, and move away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now with the change in the hospital practice so that... Um, now the doctors and nurses encourage the fa- family uh, of the patient to be there till the end. And the doctors and nurses kind of try to, uh, you know, go away from the situation um, unless they have a particular bond with that particular patient and, so, and to make that a private family time. And so uh, with that change, I've seen a corresponding change in the reports I get, whereas um, mostly in the 70s and early 80s, it was uh, most of these things I heard from um, physicians and nurses. Now I'm hearing just a tidal wave of these shared death experiences from um, family members who are there when their their loved ones pass away. Most most interestingly to me of all of all <coughs> KG and and really very difficult to understand, I think is that. Uh, Every single element that we know of as a near-death experience <clears throat> also occurs um, often uh, to the bystanders at the bedside mm-hmm. of dying loved ones. And um, the, the bystanders will talk about, as I said, the seeing the dying patient leave the body or uh, uh, the, uh, experience the room fill up with this light of love and compassion um, we, we often hear about music. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bystanders will hear just 
beautiful heavenly music mm-hmm. um, and uh, most remarkably at all of all in that regard I have uh, quite a number of cases of people who tell me that as their loved ones passed away the bystanders one of the bystanders themselves would actually co-live this life review of the dying person. Mm. And Well, um, talk a little bit more about that. Is that a painful experience you were talking about, that they no, actually no, experience no, the other person? So the, what happens out of that? I mean, what kind of... Is that, there a shift in consciousness? Is, is there some something that they're learning from that review? Well, you know, that would be my first reaction, that to me this would be very embarrassing, right? But uh, but no, to the contrary. Every uh, body that I have talked with who've had this particular uh, element of this say that to the contrary, this is a very um, uh, wonderful thing. A- actually, about, oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, you, you'll learn at age 66 uh, <laughs> that... Uh, Years go by so fast, but I guess it must have been now, gosh, 15 or more years ago, I heard uh, two cases of this from women who were in their 40s, um, both of whom had um, lost teenage sons and were there at the death of their teenage sons. And as their sons died, um, saw this uh, holographic panorama consisting of every thing their sons had ever done and and uh, felt in communion with their with their sons during this process mm-hmm. and know to the contrary of what you would think that it would be a painful thing it's it's the reverse but but the most uh, touching one of these that I heard from uh, was a woman I knew about 20 plus years ago in uh, Carrollton Georgia who had one of these um, relationships that the Greeks had a nice word for it, sturge love. You know, we all know the, the, the allegedly three types of Greek love. The era, they had three words where we have one. They had eros, referring to sexual love, and phileos, meaning the love of friendship, for example. Uh, and then uh, the agape love, which is the total selfless love of another. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Greeks actually had a fourth kind of love, and I've always wondered why this is not so well circulated, perhaps because it's it's increasingly rare in our society, but they talked of um, sturge love, and this is the kind of love that they had observed in a small farming community or whatever, that a boy and a girl would grow up as playmates and living on adjoining farms and so on, and then in the course of their life would just sort of gradually, this would gradually develop into a marriage. And um, I've always found this a very interesting type of love because I, I had a, two great aunts, my, my, uh, my grandfather Moody's sisters, who had that sort of um, sturge marriage with the two boys who lived on the adjacent farm. And um, and grew up and got married. Mm-hmm. And um, this woman I met in Carrollton these many years ago had that sort of relationship with her husband. They had uh, grown up literally as as neighbors in the same little community. And um, 
then uh, in high school, when they started dating, they didn't really think of dating each each other, uh, but they had uh, dates with other uh, people and so on. And then uh, during their senior year in high school, which at that time was the 11th grade, actually the 12th grade is a sort of recent innovation, but um, when they were in the 11th grade, they uh, had decided, well, you know, this, this is the match that's right. So they decided to get married and um, in the in the process of um, you know this is they were waiting for high school graduation and so on but she became pregnant and uh, so this was back in the era where this would have been you know a scandal as you know from being in a small town in yes. North Carolina <laughs> you can understand and in that era this was just something regarded as utterly scandalous mm-hmm. so but they had a sort of sense of humor about it and they were kind of uh, putting their strategy together like how they were going to tell their parents and so on but in this process uh, she had a spontaneous miscarriage and lost the baby and uh, the the local physician was very helpful to them and kind in this situation. But um, then anyway, that following summer, they went ahead and got married and lived a several decades-long marriage. But throughout that time, they never uh, were able, she was never able to get pregnant again. So um, uh, they they ended up not having a child. But throughout their marriage, they used to talk about the child they lost and they talked about it as though it were a boy and uh, sort of constantly referred to it as he and um, on her husband's deathbed he he developed uh, I don't remember exactly what kind but uh, as I remember a very quickly um, advancing cancer and died fairly soon after the diagnosis but she was there with him um, at, at this um at, at his death, and she said, as he was in the dying process, this uh, panorama just sprang up around them, and it consisted of everything that he had ever done, but she could see her parts there in it, too. And um, she said that they were there in this pro- the presence of this complete love that was there with them, mm-hmm. and... Um, that she said very clearly she was carrying on a conversation with her husband that he was plainly seeing the same scenes that uh, that she was seeing and um, also as she told me and I remember the puzzled look on her face in describing this she said that there were like panels or screens or areas certain areas of her husband that was were blocked off and she said that this presence of light there assured her that no this was not anything bad or any dark secrets or anything but that eventually she would know these things too but that for some reason she did not understand that you know that it just wasn't the time at that point and um but she said in describing this and again as people say there are no words uh that you can use since everything is going on at once and yet to relate it you have to describe it as though it as though it were a sequence mm-hmm. but she said from this area of this panorama that had to do with their loss of their baby this being um, 
uh, came forward and identified herself as uh, not their son, but their daughter that they had lost. And there was this very, very significant reunion with this child that they had lost in this. So, um, and I'm telling this story at length to to say that as uh, as anomalous and and uh, odd as that may seem, the people who who describe this say that not not at all is it anything um, um, unpleasant or embarrassing, but rather that it's a perfectly natural um, occurrence. I have a feeling that these are a lot more common than we might expect. I'd, over the years, I had sort of come to think that this must be a, a very rare um, element of a um, of a um, of a shared death experience, but um, I think now not because I, I was, for example, um, I was recently there was a, a crew of journalists here um, uh, recently interviewing me, and um, so I was telling this, you know, this particular aspect, and then I saw one of the the camera crew people or one of the crew people just suddenly light up with this amazing uh, look on her face and said that, it, you know, to her astonishment that some friend of hers had just recently described that very thing to her of being there in the hot, in the, the uh, ambulance. And it's, to the best of my recollection, with her father who was dying and had this... Uh, had this experience, so I think that you know that cases of this are going to come to light. I, I, um, not to plug a book, but this this is uh, in my new book, which has just come out with Guidepost, uh, called uh, "Glimpses of Eternity." I, I describe this um, uh, this in some detail, and I think that um, the uh, you know it's. Uh, once people are given the permission to talk about this, um, absolutely. Yeah, one of the very nice young journalist mm-hmm. that I was talking with um, just a few days ago uh, had been given my book just on a sort of random assignment, apparently to review, and she was talking with me through the interview and asking these questions, and then toward the end of the interview, she said, "Well, I just found your book very interesting because." Uh, she said this very thing had happened to her of this uh, of this uh, empathic death experience at the death of her father, I think it was, and um, she said that she knew full well that it had happened and it would, you know, made a very powerful impact on her, but she had no name to put to it. So um, there's no doubt in my mind that once this uh, this gets out into the public, then people will come forward because um, mm-hmm. I, I think especially well, now with this change of the hospital practice we're seeing, mm-hmm. I, I can guarantee, pretty much guarantee you that there's a tidal wave of these empathic or shared death experiences out there that people have had. Well, uh, do you think, I, I, I think it would change everything if people knew there was life after this life, um, I, I think that what you're talking about, people wouldn't get so caught up in uh, this, uh, you know, us and them, and 
there's more because what you're talking about with this life review it feels very completing feels like seeing the whole picture it feels very cleansing like it would really put you in the love and the compassion and that that's really what is always working that's always what's behind everything and if we could know that we you know we just that because that's I think why we don't experience I think we could have heaven on earth if we had the right if we were in the right state of consciousness, the right state of... I do hope that you are right. Um, We have so many wonderful, beautiful, amazing, and it's just what we choose is what we choose. We have to realize we're not victims. It's the power of choice, what we experience. I, I really do hope that what you're saying is true, that it would bring about some big change in, in the we, the way we treat each other mm-hmm. um, because KG I do feel that we are on right on the cusp of amazing new discoveries about mm-hmm. the question of life after death I think there's two things going on um, number one is that the shared death experiences which I am sure will this will uh, you know I mean it's, it's been my policy for a long time not to publish anything until I'm absolutely certain that um, that anybody who is a sincere investigator, I mean anybody who, you know, who really just looks into this out of curiosity and sincerely just wants to know and does an honest, straightforward investigation, um, you know, is going to find these same things and so that's one thing and and along with that you see comes an undermining of the standard sort of neurophysiological objections right like we hear people say uh, you know they listen to these stories of near-death experiences and they say oh well you know I think that's just the chemistry of the brain as the um, oxygen tension uh, to the brain is Diminished, then it throws up this hallucinatory right. phenomenon. Um, so, well, what is the difference? You're going to describe that. Well, I would say this: that um, if you, if you, like, let's let's suppose somebody makes that objection that these near-death experiences are just the chemistry of the brain due to diminished oxygen. But then, why would it be? true you see that the bystanders have identically this same experience you see because there's nothing wrong with them they're not ill or injured there's no no question of a cut off of the oxygen flow there so that's one thing that we that this effectively puts a major stumbling block in the way of of trying to explain this away as something just from the neurochemicals and the neurophysiology, the electrical discharges in the brain and so on, that's not going to work anymore. But concurrently, I think that we have whole new ways to to think about this now, um, KG. And in regard to what you were saying, that um, you think that, that, you know, secure knowledge of this would change the world, I do know one way very specifically, then that is that 
the human mind itself would not be the same anymore after a proof of a life after death Mm -hmm. because the very process of going through a rational proof of an afterlife Mm -hmm. would change the structure of the human mind. It would open parts of our mind that I think are there, Mm -hmm. demonstrably there, Mm -hmm. but that we have sort of shut down or now that are kind of inhibited or idling mm-hmm. but I think that the the rational process you'd have to go through to think this out uh, a proof of an afterlife would I am absolutely sure would absolutely change the human mind yes yeah. it would fire whole new neuroceptors and you yeah, know it's like, yeah. like light up the cosmic brain <laughs> well and I think that that's just right around the corner I mean uh, the the I think the, the the advances that are coming very quickly now in this whole arena of uh, studying the afterlife will will now start to focus on two things, I think. One is the shared death experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do we make of that? I, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's startling enough to know that people who almost die come back with these amazing stories. And then on top of that, now we've got to add that we can know for sure that this this same thing often happens to the bystanders. And then I think that there are major conceptual developments in the work that are going to give us an entirely new um, rational framework for talking and thinking about these things. So um, I am real confident that uh, in five or years' time, and certainly 10 years' time, that um, this whole field of investigating this question of life after death will be an entirely new sort of thing. And I, and I think, you know, don't you think that just there, there are mass numbers of people now who are have walk around thinking at any moment anything can happen and I could be dead or my loved one yeah. could be dead. I think that is more of a reality for people than ever. And I think that's one yeah. reason the rise in pharmaceuticals. People want something to numb or deal with the emotional pain of the not knowing. And so people really want yeah. this research. People really want to know. Um, so I think that's also, there's a need there that's driving I think so, the research. The baby boomers, for example, mm-hmm. or, you know, are now reaching that point where they're having to face their own mortality. They're mm-hmm. seeing their parents die and... Um, and this generation that were, you know, post World War II that grew up with, um, you know, for the most part, free of the troubles that yes. their parents' generation has had. We weren't connected by the internet where we knew everything instantaneously. That's right. That's right. So I think um, a lot of factors are coming together mm-hmm. now. Just the general. Um, I mean, to anybody with any even a grain of sense, I think, can look at the news and see that things are not well in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Maybe that's what it needs to happen I to make this transformation right. happen yeah, because people won't choose it right. on their own. I think you're absolutely right. This is, um, yeah, this is right. We're being squeezed, I think, mm-hmm. by, uh, by world events and yes. uh, out of our... Uh, th- uh, David Brooks, who is a columnist for the New York Times, wrote a very brilliant piece in the last couple of weeks in his New York Times column. 
and saying that basically what the trouble was that the underlying problem of this society is the instant gratification mentality. Mm -hmm. People can't muster the mental courage anymore to face these really tough things. They want mm -hmm. the charismatic figure to give them a an the quick answer. fix and the yeah, yes. quick fix and so mm -hmm. on. And look where that has got us. Mm -hmm. And um, but but you know, I mean, life is just fascinating for me. I'm 66. I I don't care about myself anymore. I've got. Um, two grown sons, 39 and 37, and they're doing well. Um, and and then also I've got a little grandson who's four, and then I've got two little ones, aged 12 and 9. Both of my uh, my little ones were adopted at birth, so and they're 9 and 12, so I don't worry so much about my grown sons. I don't worry about me a bit. I don't I, I worry about the little ones and this incomprehensible uh, situation that they are they're going to find because uh, but don't you think they are they were their soul is like eons of age and came in <clears throat> with you know do you think there's an unseen hand at work in orchestrating things and that well, there's I a wisdom you. there now yes the personality that's just here having this one experience yeah. but the soul I think is a, and I think that is what a near death experience would give you would give you that perspective that's that's what you're talking about with this life review you get well, this perspective I think that's right and you know the information I think with from both the uh, I got to say I've just uh, I've never been so excited about any of my books before as I'm the, the, mm -hmm. I am about the one that's coming out now mm -hmm. but uh, and and again, I'm not a commercial person. I'm not trying to plug a book, but this, uh, the you know, the glimpses of eternity is uh, the one. I'm yeah, talking about. I think that would make a wonderful movie. <laughs> well, I think that's a know, great. I think that's yeah. a great name for a movie, "Glimpses of Eternity." And I think people are right. They need really need, yeah. you know, to. <clears throat> Yes, and to and, have and, that you know, to kind of trans-dimensional perspective about yes, themselves. Yes, yes, yes. That's why I'm so excited about this. I just, uh, I to me, a book is a book. I mean, I've never, I've, but this has been a been something in my career that has a very, very personal twist to it because I myself had one of these uh, shared death experiences when my mother died and. 1994, and uh, at that time I had been putting together a group of people and we were going to do a systematic um, study of these shared or empathic death experiences. And um, right at the time that we were putting together our work, it happened to be a Mother's Day of 1994, and so after we had our meeting, I called my mom and to wish her a happy Mother's Day, and um, this was on a Sunday, and um, I asked her, of course, you know, how are you doing, and she, I mean, her voice was so cheerful, just like very, very upbeat and cheerful, and she said, oh, I'm doing fine, great, you know, just, and, and that was my first response, I mean, my, her first response, and then she just mentioned almost in an offhand way that the day before she had developed a rash. And uh, that my brothers and sisters were concerned, so they took her to the uh, doctor, I guess the emergency room or something, and he looked her over, and he 
didn't think that this was significant either. He just, you know, he couldn't really find anything. And he, but as a precaution, he gave her an appointment to see another doctor the ne- on the following uh, Sunday, which would have been the next day after I was talking with her. And um, so the next day when she went to the doctor, she was given a diagnosis of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and she mm. uh, died two weeks later to the day after the diagnosis. And my wife and I were there the whole time for the, the next two weeks in the hospital with her. And um, as she died, my wife and I had this experience along with my sister. My mm-hmm. sister saw the, or felt the, um, the spirit of my father who had died 18 months ago and I, I, I saw this light and uh, just very, very, um, you know, sobering experience and uplifting experience and that kind of it changed the tune of my curiosity about this. What had motivated me before to study it was being curious but then I, after I had my personal experience mm-hmm. it kind of set my work on this on a different track for a while, but then finally I got up enough, um, you know, thoughts about this to sort of put it into um, writing, and and I I just think this is, um, to me, this is a very significant period of world history, and... uh, Very, the most. I I think think it's the the most. The most. The most, most. and because because of the, the enormous number of different factors that are coming together all yes, at once. rapidly. It's a big front. Rapidly. That's it's just right, speeding up. Rapidly. Yeah, exponentially speeding up. That's right. I noticed the Scientific American, which is a, a science magazine I get every month, uh, is the the current issue uh, is the, on the cover. It says the end is the, is the name of the issue and they're mm-hmm. they're talking about this it is the end of an age it is the end it of is. a whole it, way of it, consciousness it and, is. And, and 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 also that nobody is able to figure out what's going to come up to take its place and uh, i just have a sense that this whole thing of uh, shared death experiences and near-death experiences are going to uh play into this, I mean, being a factor, because as you were saying, people are really looking in this uh, atmosphere of um, confusion that's gripped the whole world now, Um, people are really turning their uh, minds to thoughts of mortality and what comes after we die. And birthing new thoughts, I think, you know, birthing a whole new vision and looking at things differently. Um, Yes. Because, like you were saying, there's there we need new visions. Where there is no vision, the people will perish. We need new visions of ourselves. What's coming? And we so, really do, and um, that's. So, I, is this like the cutting edge of the in the in the field of near death studies, or is there anything else that's new in the field? Well, I think this is right now. This is the yeah. This is the. Do you think this proves life after death in your mind, or you know? Well, I'm glad you said in my mind because I am a holdout in the sense that not being raised religious, uh, KG, I had this is a hard thought for me in the sense that I just grew up assuming that when you die, it's the you know your body 
decays and your consciousness goes to zero. And it's been my life experience that as both as a psychiatrist and a philosophy professor that um, that people generally kind of hold on to the ideas that they formulate when they're very young. And so the it's been a long process for me to gradually come to the feeling that I'm boxed in because um, for a long time it was hard to me to come to the understanding or conclusion that there's an afterlife. It's so counterintuitive to me. And yet, um, now I'm in the situation, you see, I mean, the near-death experiences are one thing, but then there's a sort of surface plausibility to saying, yeah, that's just the chemistry of the brain and so on. However, with these shared death experiences being identically the same phenomenon, but occurring to bystanders who are not ill or injured, then I am in a situation where it feels to me that anything that I can say other than that this seems to be life after death, I get the sense that I'm running away rather than facing something. You know what I mean? Like uh, like emotionally, I feel that, um, that if I just avoid saying there's an afterlife, then it feels more like a rationalization or a turning away from what seems to be the most apparent thing to say. Mm-hmm. So I feel kind of boxed in on mm-hmm. that. Well, definitely there seems to be life beyond the world as we see it, just yeah, the physical yeah, world yeah. that we see it. I mean, it definitely proves there is some other... If you're having the shared experience, and I think also that we are relationship, everything happens in relationship, and I think that yes. really helps us to more get it when it's a shared experience. Well, that's right. That's right. And and also, um, it's it's um, it just it elim- it, it another problem. See this is that now the scoffers will be driven to say something else. Like if they can't say about the. People standing by the bed. Well, there's something in the. But scoffers are good because they keep help leading the research. Well, that's right. I mean, scoffers I don't like, but skeptics are neat. I mean, Mm -hmm. in the sense that the trouble with most skeptics is that they don't even know what the word skeptic means. And as a professor of ancient Greek philosophy, this was always an annoyance to me that I had to, it, when, I, when, when we got to the skeptics, I had to undo the damage that done by these people who claim to be skeptics but who don't even understand what the word is all about. But, right. but They're just the, doing resistance. But, but the people who are just resisting are yeah. now fall back and say, well, you know, yeah, it's the people who almost die. It's the oxygen cut off to the brain, but the bystanders, well, as for them, it's just that they're wishful thinking, or they're overwhelmed by emotion, or that they're hysterical or something, so they will, they will opt for... Even if, the near de- if a near death, and they describe the same, they, they share the same experience, that they well, saw the same thing? Well, I think this There's some people who are just you know, with a constitutional antipathy to this idea, and I think yeah. the only out for them is to resort to a psychological mode. Yeah. But the trouble there is that, uh, as a logician, I can tell you that one way of seeing that somebody has a weak case 
is that they shift grounds on you. Yeah. In other words, if you if the, you know you say, well, people have this experience when they almost die, and then they say, oh, that's neurophysiology. Yeah. And then you say, well, but people have the same experience at the bedside. They say, oh, that's psychological. Then that's just trying to run away from something yeah. rather than to uh, really get to some understanding. And another thing that people might say, well. You know, the empathic death experiences uh, and the near-death experiences have this in common. They say they might say, well, how do we know that this doesn't stop once the death occurs, right? But, but here the difficulty is that people who go into these experiences, both the shared death experiences and these near-death experiences, tell us that uh, at that what goes on is that they find themselves in a timeless state of existence. So, in other words, that in, in these experiences, there is no time. So they find themselves mm-hmm. in, a, in a, another state of existence in which uh, time, as we know it, does not exist. So that sort of um, knocks away the, the objection that, well, it doesn't go on after death because if when you enter into a state a timeless state of existence then that eliminates the the word after mm-hmm. yes. so um we're facing something here that are just going to be very very yes. difficult i think to um to explain away yes so well, I had a, another question about, is there a common area of the body where people say they actually leave their spirit, their soul, what, uh, leaves the body through the head, through the heart? Is there, a, and does that have any influence on what, what the kind of experience they have? Well, um, I do, people, people do say generally that, um, Especially people at the bedside who say, I'm thinking now primarily cases of um, people at the bedside who say that they see the spirit of a person who dies leave, either in this form of this transparent replica or this um, more, uh, the, the form that rises up and um, often is reported as sort of disappearing through the ceiling. And uh, that is generally described, yes, is coming from the uh, the top part of the body is where that that um, whatever you would want to call it uh, seems to seems to come out. But as to a precise location, mm-hmm. I can't say because uh, one difficulty here is that um, the spatial relationships change mm-hmm. too. That that was mm-hmm. one thing I was really startled by uh, in my experience with my mother uh, was that um, during her death process, the whole geometry of this room changed. And and I've heard this from other people as well, that that you're no longer in strictly three-dimensional space. There's no words, again, to, to... to bring to what I experienced, except that I can assure you that a lot of people are going to, you know, have a similar statement, is that 
it was as though the room from a three-dimensional cubicle of a hospital room, it bent inward, and you felt yourself in a kind of funnel, for want of a better term. Mm -hmm. And um, But believe me, I mean, I've heard this from enough people now to know that... Um, mm -hmm that this is, is something that people experience. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying everybody. Just We have the same uh, situation with uh, the shared death experiences as we do with the uh, near-death experiences, and that is that not everybody who almost dies has a near-death experience. And similarly, not everybody who's there with a um, dying loved one has a shared death experience. Mm -hmm. And we don't know yet why some do and some don't. Uh, one interesting thing is that um, I, I just, I hear, have heard numerous cases over the years in which multiple people present at the bedside of a dying loved one had a shared death experience. In other words, this, this is something that groups of people can have together. Um, but but again, not everybody does, and this is a puzzle as to why some do and some don't. It it has nothing to do with the uh, people being hysterical or emotional or whatever. Because uh, one thing I've, I've found about this, most of the people who are take the skeptical or scoffing line on this, um, by and large, are not people who've really talked with a lot of people who've had, who've had these experiences. And and um, I don't happen to know anyone. There may be such a person who who uh, has a lot to do with the work of being there with terminally ill people, as I have. But um, you know, and so the the scoffers who haven't had that clinical dimension of the experience often sort of say, "Oh, these people are emotional and so on." But it's actually quite to the contrary. I think that anybody who has had a lot of experience working with terminally ill people and has been there at the bedside of the dying, uh, that what you might imagine from the, you know, abstractly happens in that situation is a lot of emotionality and people yelling and, uh, uh, you know, and, and so on. But that just doesn't happen. And, and the very uh, mm -hmm. typical kinds of things I see where there's been a, draw, a drawn-out death. Um, uh, people, you know, don't lose control of themselves and get all hysterical, mm -hmm. um, but rather it's a, it's a natural human process. That, yeah. that after all, we've been, you know, we've been going through this for 100,000 years or so It's now. the only way out. We all That's do right. it. We all do it. So um, what is the key message people return with from a near-death experience? Well, I think there's two, and it's pretty much the same as uh, as people from the shared death experiences, which is, and it's, I think, the same phenomenon. And that is that, number one, uh, whatever we're chasing, uh, the point of this seems to have to do with love more than anything else, uh, that it's in, you know, that what we're here for is to cultivate loving relationships with others. And secondly, uh, that there's nothing to fear in death. That, um, that, there, that 
the people that I know who've been closest than any of our our fellow human beings to death come back and tell us that it was actually one of the highlights of their life. And so, um, what are you working on now? I know you have a tour. Don't you have a tour coming up in 2011? I do. Right now, all my uh, my uh, professional energy is concentrated on this uh, new book, Glimpses of Eternity, which is actually out now. I was in it's in out in Europe and uh, uh, and Britain, uh, and I guess it's, it's going to be out very soon in the U.S. with guideposts. So I'll be on a tour uh, about that and. Um, that's professionally. Personally, my life is kind of focused on my little kids and my grandchild and family things, because mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, you know the the pleasure of of my life. But the professional side is um, very much focused on this. This uh, yeah. This uh, I I can pretty confidently say that um, that. Um, in another five or so years' time, the whole field of investigating the question of life after death is going to, uh, it'll be at a whole different level. Of um, there's, there's Stuff is coming out now that is uh, going to give us entirely new tools for investigating the question of life after death. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, you know, new... Uh, rational means of investigation yes. that are going to bring yes. us closer to this. Uh, yes. To getting a genuine And we can talk about more about that when we bring Dr. Turner right. on the line with us. So, do you have anything else you'd like to share with us about near death and the afterlife before we bring Dr. Turner on the show? Well, uh, nope. I'm just looking forward to uh, talking with Jack, too. And so okay, good. okay. Well, I just wanted to remind everyone to learn more about Dr. Raymond Moody and his work in the field of near death and the afterlife. Please visit his website at lifeafterlife.com. That's lifeafterlife.com. So um, just we're going to have a little pause uh, while I get Jack on the line, okay? Hi, are you both there? I'm here. Oh, hi, Raymond. I'm here. Hi, oh, Jack. wonderful. How are you? I'm fine, sir. Great. So, Thank I'll... you so much, Jack, for everything. This has been great being with you in the last few days. And... Well, you know, Raymond, as I said, I've got to thank you. I mean, what a great honor to be with the man who really inspired me to uh, to follow this path. So thank you. Well, you know, we're all in this together. We this are. A, a I think that's what... Adventure. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to introduce my next guest is Dr. John L. Turner. Dr. Turner is a board-certified neurosurgeon, and his new book, Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, is a nonfiction narrative about his surgical career and spiritual quest and his evolutionary journey in the field of integral medicine. While completing his doctoral degree in physics, Dr. Turner was given a book about Edgar Cayce, The Sleeping Prophet, which changed the course of his life. For 18 years, Dr. Turner served as the sole neurosurgeon on the island of Hawaii. From his first day on call in Hilo, Hawaii, metaphysical events began to occur. Dr. Turner's curiosity drove him to explore non-traditional healing. Some of the healing techniques he used included the practice of Joe Ray, chanting and meditation, soul travel, and astral projection and precognition and remote viewing. 
Dr. Turner is the only brain surgeon to write about medicine from the perspective of integral medicine and uses his complementary techniques prior to, during, and after surgery. Notably, Dr. Turner's complementary methods explore pathways that lead to the spiritual world. To learn more about Dr. John L. Turner and his work, please visit his website where you can also subscribe to his blog at johnlturner.com. That's johnlturner.com. Please welcome to the show my very special guest, Dr. John L. Turner. Aloha, Jack. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, KG, and thank you and Raymond for allowing me to join you in this discussion. Yes. So what led you to work with Dr. Moody? Well, as I've said, I, I really work for Dr. Moody. I, I would like to say I work with Dr. Moody, but the reason I say for Dr. Moody is that I feel that his compilation of the stories of shared near-death experiences and what he has to teach in his new book, Glimpses of Eternity, is just outstanding. And, you know, I, I came to work in this capacity to discuss these things with uh, Dr. Raymond Moody, who they call the father of near-death experiences, because of a couple of projects that have to do with the uh, uh, producers in Australia, Viv Summers and uh, Anna Reeves. And these ladies have wanted to present uh, a TV series that is called Proof, Beyond the Reasonable Doubt, that explains that there is survival of consciousness. And as a neurosurgeon, I've been very interested in how the brain is involved with all of this and what consciousness is all about. And if we look at the world situation today, KG, and as you and Raymond well know, things are in great turmoil. And I think that by explaining that to the average person who wants to know what happens after death, why am I here, where do I go, if they realize that consciousness persists, and there is this afterlife or this period in which we change and we go on to a new dimension, I think then we can be, go beyond the fact that we're all brothers and sisters, that we're all one, and we're all connected in this, and we have to respect everybody and everything. So that's the reason I'm involved in these projects, which are films and TV projects, and also to promote Dr. Moody's great book, because I think that anyone who reads that book is going to have to say, wow, this is the way it works, and I think it will change their lives. Mm -hmm. So what do you feel is the best evidence for survival of consciousness? And I'd like to hear from both of you on this. Okay, well, would you like me to go first? Yes, why uh, don't you start? All right, the best evidence. Well, mm -hmm. I think, uh, well, if we review what are the different evidences, I would say that uh, it depends on the researcher. Some will say that mental mediums produce the best evidence of contact with the afterlife. The people who promote instrumental communication, transcommunication, and the you know EVP, the electronic voice phenomena, will say, look, this is definite proof. We're getting information here through these electronic methods that you can't dispute. And there are others, such as the eye movement desensitization that produces a induced uh, after-death experience. They will say, this is the proof. For me, the best proof is the fact that someone can be in the room with a patient who is passing and experience a lot of the same things that patient is going through. For example, that panoramic life review, sometimes the opening of an of a entrance into another dimension, and some people who have actually left their body also and maybe left with that patient who has left their body and almost traveled into that next dimension. And to see you know, the relatives and loved ones who seem to come to lead this patient on. 
That, to me, is the proof, because it takes away all these arguments about the dying brain and hypoxia or carbon dioxide buildup or chemical release. You know, there's something here that's so significant it's led me to work for Dr. Moody in promoting his book. So I would say this is the best evidence, the shared near-death experience. And you, Raymond? I absolutely agree with Jack on this. I think this is uh, something that is really taking the whole discussion into a different dimension now Mm -hmm. because uh, I just can't see any plausible way. It's kind of like triangulation in, in effect. I mean, we're seeing the same thing from the point of view of people who almost die and return, but also from the people who are standing around. So we're seeing the same thing from two slightly different angles. And um, to me, this is the strongest indication of, of an afterlife. And I think um, that this is that very quickly now we're going to be seeing entirely new means of investigation open mm-hmm. up, uh, entirely new rational methods for, uh, for honing in on this question. And um, concurrently with that, there are developments in the field of logic that I don't really have. This I am, uh, as I said, in life after life. My first, I um, was uh, initially a professor of philosophy, and my areas of special interest logic and uh, philosophy of language and. This is a very technical discipline, so I, I mean, I it really couldn't broach it in, uh, in, in this context except to say that um, I, I can assure you that there are new developments in, in the field that we could call logic uh, that are bringing about new uh, entirely rational methods mm-hmm. for investigating the question of an afterlife that we haven't had in the past. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be this combination, uh, and Jack alluded uh, uh, when he, at, at first he was talking about the different, he said part of the question is what is evidence? I mean, and, and um, I think that's entirely right, that uh, there's a big conceptual question here as to um, how we would think of the notion of evidence of an afterlife in the first place. But now I think that that big stumbling block is is removed, too, because of developments in, in logic that are maybe too uh, a little bit technical to talk about in this, in this uh, context. But nonetheless, then applied to this, um, these shared death experiences and the near-death experiences, I think that we are really, really inching closer to um, lending rational credence to the notion of an afterlife. I think at least it's going to get harder and harder for people who have some sort of um, constitutional uh, distaste for this idea of an afterlife. And I'm, and I'm really kind of embarrassed to admit to you that I had that for years myself. I just seemed so counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it seems... And from I, someone I who's an intuitive, it seems counterintuitive not to... <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And I think that's partly like one's background. I, I just was not... I grew up a, a, 
a devoted amateur astronomer. Yeah, and my, the way you're conditioned. wasn't religious. So to me, this is an outlandish idea. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, I do see that things are closing in on me, whereas uh, anything I can say, especially with the addition of the the shared death experiences, which are an apparently an identical phenomenon to the to the near death experience, yet happens to people who just happen to be standing around, uh, then it gets harder and harder to uh, run away from the implications of mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Well, well, um, well, Raymond, there's probably no way to run away from it. Like I KG, think you're imagine, right. Yeah, imagine you're there, KG, with the. A close friend or relative who is dying, and you see the light, you hear the music, and you know, and maybe even go. Oh, I've had those experiences. I I've had the shared experiences with my dad when he was crossing, and then my mom who just recently went into hospice. I've already had lots of interesting experiences. I had with my mom in uh, prayer for her uh, when I first found out that she was in hospice. I saw this big white angel with she had a, like a crucifix and like this not she was like a nun a nun nurse <laughs> and i heard the name saint bernadette and i had no idea who is saint bernadette so i looked it up and saint bernadette is the person she helps people who are crossing and also people with uh, my mom has advanced emphysema so she helps she died i guess she had asthma her entire life and she helps people with respiratory things and she discovered uh lords in the south of france so i i you don't have to <laughs> i'm you're talking with one of the you're talking to the choir well listen the thing is and as i discussed and asked raymond about uh, not too long ago is that to have these experiences with the person who is passing, does it require that that you have this emotional contact? Because a skeptic might say, listen, this is still an imaginary thing. But doctors and nurses who may not have this close contact with the patient have experienced similar things. So it kind of takes it out of the contact, context of imagination and mm-hmm. hopeful thinking. It appears mm-hmm. this is a very real thing. And I think it's going to be a significant change uh, as we, you know, discuss all the various implications uh, about uh, persistence of consciousness. I think it's going to uh, end up with this being very significant, the shared experience. Well, it's like an eyewitness, isn't it? It's like someone who's an eyewitness at the scene. That's right. And all of this coming together right at the time where the, in which the world most needs it, Mm -hmm. I think is a, is a fascinating uh, uh, confluence of events. Yes. Because um, it's really just getting increasingly difficult, I think, to see any easy way out of the situation that the world is in right now. And We're going to have to transcend the old consciousness. Yeah. That's yeah. what's going to need to take place. Yes, that's, that's right. The, the, there is going to be a very soon now a sort of worldwide shift in consciousness and um, it's I think it's probably impossible to predict in advance what it's going to be like or what it looks like or yeah I think there there have been times like this in the past when the human mind had to uh, uh, undergo huge shifts and uh, 
a lot of them had to do in ancient Greek philosophy, for example, uh, and uh, um, some of the foundational notions of Western thought were, for example, uh, the notion of truth. That is, that there are some things that are the case no matter what anybody thinks about it was first propounded in 500 B.C. by a philosopher named Parmenides. And then uh, Plato, a hundred-plus years later, came along and and um, drew the distinction between truth and falsehood and, and wedded the pursuit of truth to the uh, literal domain of language. And when he did that, he... He, he effectively laid down the distinction between figures of speech and literal language, which, of course, we learn when we're in grammar school and high school. So it seems to us that that's part of just how things are. But actually, that, wasn't, that didn't come around till Plato, who pointed out the distinction between figures of speech and literal language. And then Aristotle came along and codified logic, and then people had a... Had a reasoned methodology for thinking logically and um, I think that we're soon going to be into a shift that's uh, uh, a lot like those shifts like entire shift in the way that people think and um, I'm really confident of this as a matter of fact. Well we're birthing all these new technologies that can facilitate that like it sounds like what you're talking about is this development of a whole new field of science for near-death and out-of-body experiences where they'll develop technology and am I right or is that? Well, yes, and I think that uh, soon we'll see that there are parts of our minds that we have shut down. And and, and have they done any research with that? Like you talked about certain parts of the brain lighting up after, you know, or somebody has a near-death experience, is there some way to see if they have different things in their brain you know, operating after having those experiences? There actually are ways of doing this. It's, uh, it, take, it's, it's, uh, it takes quite a while to explain it, but basically there are there's reliable methodologies now that are just beginning to seep out. I mean, there probably is no more than a few hundred people in the world right now who who have gotten this, but yes, there are, and, and it's remarkably sim- uh, simple, actually. It takes takes a certain amount of uh, stick to I mean, you've got to reason your way through a long argument, but uh, when you do that, you, you do, it, it turns out to be fairly simple to open up uh, a new section of our rational minds that we didn't know even existed, mm-hmm. and that this is these new principles of reasoning are are very apropos to the question of an afterlife. In other words, they they give us new methods of investigating lots of different questions, not just life after death, all sorts of questions of science and spirituality. But um, this is not something I think it'll be, you know, it's not going to be right away. This will be in the next couple of years, I think, is where this is going to gain much more general mm-hmm. um, circulation. But for now, I think, um, you know, I'm completely confident that um, very shortly now that, uh, that the, question, the way we investigate questions of life after death will undergo a very dramatic transformation. We'll have whole new ways of looking at this. 
And yes. what do you think about if this, I may Jack? Jump in a little bit. Yeah, if I may jump in here a little bit on that. Yes. Uh, way back, uh, you know, Duncan McDougall did the research in which he took uh, TB patients who were dying, and he put them on a very sensitive scale. And he tried to measure what happens at the time, the exact moment of death. And he and a couple of his compatriots uh, would sit there and watch carefully. And he found out and he determined that there was a loss of three-quarters of an ounce, and that's equal to 21 grams that everyone has heard about. Well, he figured that there must be a weight of the body and the matter and energy, and this was his conclusion. Well, now, what do we have? We have functional MRIs that can show that at the time around death, there's this amazing period of lucidity where some of the areas that you would expect in someone who is dying wouldn't light up, but they light up with functional MRI. Dr. Johnny Lerma has been working with this, and Melvin Morris uh, says that he is working on grants so he can also use something like a functional MRI to show what is really happening. So that's the science of it. It's advanced quite a bit with that and PET scanners and all these things. And people are opening up, institutions are opening up to say, well, let's do a little more research. But however, I feel that anyone that can understand and can even experience this shared near-death experience will have to realize that this is the way it does work, and there's absolutely no question about it. And all the research is good, all the academic interest is good, but I think the proof is right there. And I think Dr. Moody has done enough to hit it on the hit the nail on the head. This is what we needed. This will okay. really help. Well, I know that in your years of working uh, and doing research uh, as a neurosurgeon, you had quite a number of experiences uh, with people. Did you ever have any shared death experiences yourself? or You know, when my mother passed, I was not as fortunate as Dr. Moody when his mother passed. You know, I sat with her, and during the last uh, three weeks of her life, she suffered from uh, severe Alzheimer's during her last years. Mm -hmm. She was almost 99 when she passed. But what happened after three weeks of being completely out sleeping, no oral intake, nothing, she suddenly turned and opened her eyes to look at me. She didn't say a word. I did the talking, and looking in her eyes, I said, Mom, I want to thank you again for everything you've done for us. I said, because of you, we'll be just fine, and you can leave. You can go now. And then it was interesting. She closed her eyes and then went back to sleep. Now, I should have stayed there then, but what I did, I set my clock uh, for two hours because I would get up and roll her every two hours. She was completely bedridden. Mm -hmm. And then I had the dream, KG and Raymond, that in a dream I had on a white coat, I'm making rounds at the hospital, and the nurse says, Dr. Turner, can you please uh, take a look at your mother? So I walk over to the bed and I pull out my pen, and on the bed sheet I write, no oral intake for three weeks, family does not wish to push fluids and as soon as I signed my name I woke up and I went to the next room and sure enough she was still warm but not breathing mm -hmm. so I really missed a chance to have that shared near-death experience but I tell you what at that time a couple of years ago I didn't know about the shared near-death experience mm -hmm. and now that Dr. Moody has brought it to light and over the years he's collected the cases I think people are going to be more and more aware of this, and it's more and more is going to happen. Because people yeah, it's like the own. first person who ran that seven-minute mile. <laughs> then yeah. it was, you know, and so it'll be like it brings it into people's consciousness that this is something they can experience, and so or then they'll be open. Mile, KG. Do you 
mean four minute mile. Oh, four minute mile. Sorry about that. <laughs> I was the seven okay, minute mile. Okay. <laughs> four minute right. mile. This is going to change, and as Dr. Mooney has probably already mentioned, you know, medicine has changed, and we no longer try to shoo the family and friends out. You know, we'd rather say now, you know, please be there at this time because this is critical time. So more and more of these will come out, and people will realize, look, there is this spiritual world, there is this persistence of consciousness, and with this and the other things we hope to present in this Beyond the Reasonable Doubt TV series, I think for years people are going to learn more and more about this, and we'll be more and more kind to each other, mm -hmm. and it'll be a world-changing thing. I think yes. we're right on the cusp of that. Is Dr. Moody yes. yes, yes, yes. Yes. Um, Yes, I and this um, moment that, or this uh, this fact that um, Jack mentioned about the lucidity of people and the terminal events. Um, this is really an extraordinary thing, and again, it's very common. In other words, this is not much talked about, but any sincere investigator uh, can find as many cases of this as um, they wish, and it's it's very common, as, as um, Jack described there, that when a person is terminally ill, they may go through periods of literally a couple of weeks or more, and they seem to be um, completely out of touch, and the family is just sort of sitting around assuming that, um, you know, they're just sitting there waiting for the, uh, their family member's heart to stop beating, when all of a sudden the... Um, the person will rally, and, and the many listeners who have seen this themselves will, will agree that it's just extraordinary, that, that for want of a better term, people in this situation become more alive than alive. It's just it's startling to watch this. And uh, whereas before they were obtunded and apparently comatose, they come out uh, of this, and they are very articulate. They tell everybody at the bedside. They give everybody a message, uh, and then they just turn over and die. And this is really extraordinary that the, 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 the most lucid I have ever seen some people was at them just before they die. And, and the... Uh, there used to be a name for this. It was um, at the time when our ancestors went, you know, would have the death at home. They were aware of this phenomenon, and they called it fey, F-E-Y. Now, if you look up in the dictionary, you'll see that that word has a lot of different meanings. But the sort of central meaning of it is that fey is this very phenomenon that that people on the verge of death will become extremely lucid. I mean, uh, one man from uh, came came um, years ago. This was 15, 14 years ago, I guess. Came, and he was describing this phenomenon with his wife, and um, he was um, uh, she had had a long declining illness, and then. He was getting ready to go down. He wanted to go down to the local convenience store just for a few minutes. So he walked in, and his wife seemed uh, preternaturally alive, for want of a better term. He said, "Just he was amazed, and his 
his thought was that, oh, my goodness, she's going to come out of this lengthy illness that she had had. And they had a very deep discussion one-on-one. And uh, then, as you can imagine, he, he, he said, I'm just going to go to the store for a few minutes. And, of course, uh, when he came back, she had died. And, and I wish that I could convey the look on his face that he had as he uh, uh, described this to me. And I remember his exact words. He said that looking back on it, he said that time that he was with her just before he died, he said it was as though she already had one foot on the other side. And this is a phenomenon that is so startling that I think if people haven't experienced in in it themselves, they just they'll have it a hard time to 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 believe but nonetheless you can ask around among hospice workers and physicians who've dealt with the terminally ill and it was it is absolutely the case that many people even if they've been obtunded for days and days will just prior to life uh, to to dying they will sort of sit up and they'll come to and they seem more alive than alive even like they're already uh sometimes in this state they they seem to light up with a a light that's not of this dimension at all and uh, again these are things that sound very startling to talk about but if you ask around among people who um, work with the terminally ill you this this is just a, a occurrence common enough that uh Almost anybody in that profession will know about this. That's right. And, you know, I mentioned that was a brief flash. You know, my mother laying motionless for three weeks suddenly sat up, turned to look right in my eyes. So very startling. And uh, so I think, yes, this is that the way it works. And look how many people will say that the departed spouse comes back, you know, to communicate with them or they stay in communication. I mean, this is a common thing. And... At first, it looks like uh, wives' tales, but now with the uh, proof and the evidence that uh, Raymond has presented and others, I think there's no question about it anymore. Yeah, there's confirmation, and so people will come out and begin sharing their experiences. They feel more they can open up and share. I think a lot of people feel a lot of emotional pain, a lot of unfinished business, mm-hmm. things like that that come with the dying process. So I think this will add a whole element that will lighten things up so that people, uh, they'll take the opportunity for healing uh, well, during I those. what's going to happen. Now, I'm going to guess into the future, Raymond and KG, is that we won't be talking about death anymore because probably there is no such thing as death. And it's merely a like changing train. Mm-hmm. You know, we go to the next uh, or a different level, different mm-hmm. dimension. And it's kind of like waking up in a new dream, you know, leaving one dream, going to another dream. This is the way it works. And I don't think we'll talk about death and grieving. And actually, we should be celebrating when a life well-lived comes to an end and know that they're going on to continue other good works. So I think this is what the change will be. And I think also it's uh, for, it's, grief is, I mean, in it, in when it exists, it is the most painful of human emotions, and I think that uh, the another aspect of this work that Jack and I do is that it, this does give hope for people who are grieving, and it demonstrably uh, 
comforts people in the grieving process. And I think also for the very many people who are afraid of death and who are perhaps not living life to the fullest because of their fear of death, um, I think this new work absolutely does. And I mean new work, not talking about me personally, but the work of Jack and, and of myself and of... Uh, our, our colleagues in this field who, who investigate these things that uh, I think it's pretty demonstrable that, that these, these experiences do um, uh, soften the fear of death. I, I know that because I've heard people uh, telling me this ever since I first started lecturing about these experiences, which was in about 1970. And um, so over the 40 years that I've been in the public arena about this, this is something I hear more or less constantly from people, is that um, knowing about this information um, uh, gives them hope and uh, helps, them, helps console them in, in the face of a loss of a loved one and also uh, helps them with their fear of death. Yes, and I think shifting our consciousness to that we are eternal beings, I think that changes everything. Well, it really does. And you know what it does to me is it makes me wonder what this place we're in is all about. Mm -hmm. I mean, since this is a fairly new thing to me that I've sort of been maneuvered almost into a situation where I've got to say that the most plausible and honest thing to say is that there's an afterlife, then that really makes this state of existence we're in now a lot more mysterious. I mean, what is this all about? It's, um, it, in a funny sort of way, my own insight uh, in that, that this is the way it is, that there is an afterlife, that it's really made this life that we're in much more puzzling. Like, what's what's this all about mm -hmm. and um, and again the best best answer I've come up with is the one that I heard from George Ritchie in 1965 and I've heard from thousands of people since that time which is basically that um, this seems to be God's uh, educational medium that we're in and it's uh, and it seems to have to do with learning to love mm -hmm. more than anything else and pursuing knowledge is another thing you often hear people uh, say who've been through this is that uh, they are a very common um, after effect is after somebody has one of these experiences is that they say that they go down to the local community college to sign up for courses because they, um, this experience really does make us very aware of our own ignorance in a very positive way. I mean, uh, if people have just been get, getting through life without much curiosity and uh, uh, then they have one of, an experience like this, it really uh, creates them in them an impassioned desire to learn. Uh, one of the best friends I ever had was this wonderful woman named Vi Horton who had her near-death experience in um, May of 1971. And I got to know Vi and her older sisters very well. 
and uh, her older sisters told me that prior to her near-death experience um, that she had uh, that her common reading matter was romance novels was the only thing she ever read but after uh, Vi had her experience she used to come to visit my wife and me for a couple of weeks at a time she was um, she loved our children and she took care of them a lot for us and uh, but Vi would raid my library and of philosophy books and mm-hmm. psychology books and sometimes would read like two books a day of and and would understand the material and and um, she as as I've heard from quite a number of other patients with extremely lengthy cardiac arrest talk about that they become aware almost of another plane of existence that has to do with the uh, the pursuit of knowledge mm-hmm. uh, as George Ritchie uh, put it he said um, knowledge that that uh, this learning is not something that stops when you die, but that goes on quite literally, George mm-hmm. says, for eternity. So that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It just recently I heard a, a man, um, actually, by coincidence, this, uh, the, this was a man from Hawaii, an artist, um, I, and uh, uh, this filmmaker told me about this friend of his who had... Um, lost his son from an accident and he said then his son shortly thereafter came back to him and said um, that he was in effect he compared this life to a university and that uh, this this process of knowledge is something that goes on even even in the uh, in, in the um, the the what, I, what we call death, but as as Jack was saying, and as I heard also Robert Kestenbaum, who used to be the um, editor of the Omega Journal, which is the Journal of Death Education, um, and about, I guess, 15, 16 years ago, Bob Kestenbaum said to me that he had begun to think in the course of his career that death itself changes. In other words, that um, what we call death in, in any one era is not the same as we call death in some other era. I mean, uh, for example, these people who undergo these um, surgeries in which all of the blood is drained out of their brain to repair an aneurysm, for example, and uh, they're uh, put into a severely hypothermic Condition, so their body temperature is way down, and then uh, they they stop the heart beating, and then they drain the blood from the patient's head. And this uh, Jack would be able to say how long these operations go on, but as I recall, it's about an hour or so. But uh, and during that time, these people have no brain waves or whatever. And so, what would you say about that? Was then that people are you know then they are heated up again, the blood is reinfused into their body, they're warmed up, and their heart is stopped, started again, and my goodness, they're alive again. Well, what do we call that state? Ben, uh, I would like to know, Jack, I mean, 
what do you make of this? I mean, well, I know that when you and I went to medical school, the thing that Pam Reynolds was in would have been called death. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit, Raymond. Yeah, you and I started medical school the same year, 1972. Is that not correct? That's right. That's right. So, Here's the thing with Pam Reynolds, and, you know, that's a famous case, and I mentioned it in my book, and the reason, you know, Dr. Spetzler was the surgeon in charge, and he kindly wrote the foreword for my book. Uh, you know, I really appreciate that. I think he's one of the best, if not the best. He is. He is a good man. He's a good he man. He certainly is. Now, here's what he told me. Uh, I met him at one conference. Uh, this is way before I thought about writing a book, but I knew about this case, and I said, Bob, I have a question for you. I said, at the time this happened with Pam Reynolds, which we'll talk about what happened in a minute, and her near-death experience, I said, did you know about such things? And he looked at me and he said, Jack, absolutely not. He said, I had never heard of out-of-the-body or near-death experiences. And he said, I find it simply astounding that the brain could produce such hallucinations when it is electrically silent. Now, this is what he told me. Now, the case of Pam Reynolds, a pseudonym for a lady who was a musician, country-western uh, entertainer, I guess, and she's passed on recently. She finally did make that final journey. But what happened was this. She had an aneurysm of the brain, a kind of a ballooning out, which prone to rupture, but it was deep in the brain. And I believe technically it was called a basilar tip aneurysm. Now, to get to this is very difficult and actually carries so much risk that he felt let's do this cardiac standstill procedure. And here's what they do. As Raymond said, they cool the body down. Now, in, in Tim Von Nommel's uh, great book, Consciousness Beyond Life, he uh, talks about this case, and he said the cooling was to a value of 50 degrees Fahrenheit. But actually, I called Dr. Spetzler's office and spoke with the physi uh, you know, physiologist who was on that case, and it was 60 degrees is about the temperature they cool the body to protect the brain. Then they stop the blood flow, they stop the blood flow to the brain, and they physically elevate the patient's head and drain the blood out of the brain, right? During this time, the EEG is completely flatlined during wow. the time it takes to do this. Also, uh, evoked potentials, which are done by placing a 100 dB click sound in the ears. Now, let me tell you what that sound is. As Chris Carter mentions in his great book, Right, Science and the Near-Death Experience, as I read that about the clicks, as he describes this case, I'm wondering, well, how, what is 100 dB? And then there it is, a footnote on that page saying, this is the level standing in front of a symphony orchestra. And a lot of those people do have hearing loss, those musicians, right? He talks about that. But anyway... The signal produced by that click was not picked up on the cortex, you know, by EEG, I mean recording. So she was technically dead during yeah. that time. All right. Now, here's the thing. She was able to recount many things during that time, and cardiologist Sabom describes this in his interviews, that she described the tool we use called a craniotome, which means an instrument for opening the skull. And it's like a high-powered saw in a way, but it does look like she description of a toothbrush or some type of electric drill. And she even described the sound, this high-frequency hum that it makes, conversations in the operating room, all of that. And then she describes leaving her body through the top of her head, mm -hmm. going and being escorted and meeting her relatives in, in this other dimension. 
And actually, she was literally uh, brought back by her great uncle, and he said, you have to go back. And she was afraid, and he said, no, it's like jumping into a pool of water. And he actually pushed her back into her body. Mm. And she described that as being just like that, jumping into a pool of ice water. It was shocking for her. She didn't really anticipate how bad it was going to be, and that's why she was reluctant. But the point is, that's a famous case. Now, someone who wants to be skeptical, Raymond and, and KG, will say, well, wait a minute, 60 degrees, flat line, isn't it possible that, that at that low temperature, there's still some brain activity producing all of this, even though we didn't record it on these instruments? Then I would cite the case of Melvin Morris, a young girl who in the Pocatello, Idaho, YWCA swimming pool, right, was found missing, and they determined that for about 14 minutes, it looks like this child had been underwater drowning. And when she was resuscitated, uh, later, Dr. Morris came across her in a clinic, sometime later after this resuscitation, and she said to him, I'm still mad at you for what you did. And apparently he said, what are you talking about? And she told him things about how, when she was brought back, she heard Dr. Morris on the phone talking to someone, and he quoted his statement. He said, what am I supposed to do now? He was calling for help during that resuscitation, what to do. She also recounted some of the nurses' conversations. And here, there was no blood flow to that brain, and the temperature of the pool is around 85 degrees Fahrenheit, warm enough that someone could survive indefinitely in that water. So there are a lot of these kind of things that are proof, but what could be more proof, KG, than, as you already know, and Raymond knows, and I wish I had experience, to be there at the bedside and to hear this music, to see this light, and to even see the deceased relatives or friends as the light opening up. Now, what more does it take for someone to understand that? So either all these people are lying when they say this happened to them, or they're telling the truth, and I have no reason to suspect so many people would conjure up a lie, including doctors and nurses and hospice workers. So there's just no question about it. And hopefully this TV series is going to bring this out in all kind of ways, and we're opening our website to the public now, KG. They mm -hmm. can go to beyondareasonabledoubt.tv where we're discussing these things, people who have worked with EVP or mediums or and near-death experiences, and we'd like the general public to say what they think is important. So there's a way they can register on the site by first contacting me through my website. There's a way to email me, and I can look for them to register, and we can open up this discussion so we all start to share these experiences as brothers and sisters. Oh, that's wonderful. So do you guys have anything further you'd like to share before we close today's show? Jack? Uh, well, I think, you know, I'm not sure what you talked about in the hour before with Dr. Moody, but I think that you've covered the shared near-death near -death experiences and how important they are to show that it's not a manifestation of a dying brain. I think that's the key thing that I'd like to leave people with. And I think when they read Raymond's book, and I would read uh, the two, well, there's several key books he's written. Reunions was a great book about the psychomantium experience and we hope in a series gateway, a spin-off TV series, to be able to put people in Dr. Moody's psychomantium chamber and let them experience some of these things, mm -hmm. and maybe to, to describe their stories. And this may be a long-running TV series, too. So there's a lot 
on the cusp of the future. So I would recommend Well, I definitely that. see, you know, I definitely was visioning and seeing this image of uh, this room. I don't know, maybe it's what your this name you've given it. Um, I yes, saw I that. Yes, so yes. I saw it being like a movie or television or I definitely see that happening. So you, you saw this as a vision? Yes, I saw that when we were first talking. I saw that happening. Yeah. Well, the psychomantium, if people will read Dr. Moody's book, uh, they will see that this goes back to maybe Egyptians, the Greeks, and the mirror gazing and scrying, uh, this contact with the dead. And, you know, they're in, as Dr. Moody can speak about the ancient times, you know, people would go to to experience this, to see their loved ones. So Dr. Moody has recreated this type of chamber in his home in Atlanta, and, you know, he spends time with the people to kind of, you know, ease this process. And once they enter that chamber, and they, the ones who experience contact with those that departed, sometimes it's not the one they had planned unexpectedly. But this is what we hope to do in the TV series called Gateway. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Moody may want to end by commenting on the Psychomantium Chamber. Oh, I'd love to hear about that. Well, yes, this uh, again goes back to the ancient Greeks, and uh, who one, one of the really odd things, really, is that if we were transported back to ancient Greece in the time of uh, Plato, for example, in Athens, twenty three hundred years ago, uh, we would find the same kinds of debates about near death experiences going on then as now. All, all of these early philosophers knew about near-death experiences and vigorously debated the subject. And um, the ancient Greeks had techniques which actually existed in American culture up till about 1915, as far as I can uh, tell. And, um, and this was a very well-known fact, is that you can create conditions into which people will see full-color, moving, three-dimensional, apparitions of their departed loved ones in a full state of conscious awareness. And it's really remarkable, I think, that this was just a standard folk practice in America until about, say, 1915. And what I surmise happened at that time was that the radio age came and, to, and then the TV age, and, and instead of uh, sitting around interacting with things like this as... Uh, as people used to do in our great-grandparents' day, uh, then we went through this phase of uh, being electronically uh, um, engrossed in all the radio and later the TV. Yes, but this is a... It, it turns out to be remarkably uh, simple to, to evoke the spirit of uh, reunion with departed loved ones. And um, I think... Um, you know this. This too, I, I think, will. Uh, I think uh, the way I see this developing is more along the lines of grief therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, some uh, psychologists, for example, in California at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, are teaching this to their psychotherapy graduate students as a modality for grief therapy. Um, and then I think along the lines of maybe establishing, you know, or, or more definitely establishing that there's an afterlife, I think the, uh, the going thing now really, it seems to me, is integrating this information about um, the shared death experiences because this has simply got to 
to be intellectually honest now, I think it's going to require us getting away from the old debate about, well, maybe these, uh, these things are, um, the near-death experiences are just the brain chemistry, because uh, when you when you bring in the shared death experiences, that that old explanation goes out the window, and so now we are into, I think, a whole new era that mm-hmm. uh, very shortly now, I think, we're going to see an enormous shift in the interest in this question of an afterlife, and also a very dramatic change in our ability to investigate the subject from a genuinely rational point of view. Mm-hmm. So I um, agree with that completely. Yeah. You know, one of my policies that I've always had, Jack, is that um, I never publish anything until I'm absolutely sure of one thing, and that is that anybody who sincerely investigates this uh, and, you know, sets out to try to confirm or disconfirm what I've saying in this, and I'm referring here to this new book, The Glimpses of Eternity on the Shared Death Experiences, that the reason I feel completely confident in putting that out is that uh, I'm absolutely assured just from experience that um, any sincere investigator who, who looks into this is going to find plenty of cases of this themselves. And so they won't have to take it from me or from anyone else. They can just uh, find it among their own friends and associates. Mm-hmm. And once that that sinks in, then I think the whole investigation of the afterlife question is going to be on an entirely new footing. Oh, I agree with you completely, Raymond. This is what's going to happen in positions and the general public is going to start to change the way they're looking at life and what it's all about and I think we'll treat each other with uh, compassion and kindness yes so well it's been wonderful speaking with you both Raymond and Jack on today's show on the subject of near death and the afterlife and thanks so much for joining me Thank you, so to learn more about Dr. Moody and his fascinating work on death and dying, please visit his website, lifeafterlife.com. That's lifeafterlife.com. And to learn more about Dr. John L. Turner and his work in spirituality and integral medicine, please visit his website, where you can also subscribe to his blog at johnlturner.com. That's johnlturner.com. Have a beautiful day, everyone. A warm mahalo. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, It's been a pleasure having you on the show, Raymond and Jack. And uh, I know you're going to have a really successful book launch. So, Thank you so much. I just really deeply appreciate you both. So thank you so much. And thank you, too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.